Okay, time is marching on this morning, so we're going to continue working our way through John's Gospel, and uh, the title this morning is Rivers of Living Water, and we'll get straight into it. We'll pick up where we left off last week, John chapter 7, verse 31, and many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done. Now you remember last week I said there was a the tide was turning, there was a great divide. People were having to decide they're either for Christ or against him. And they were getting more and more committed in whatever stance they took. Those that were for him were, were excited, but those that were against him were becoming more and more hostile. And the, many of the disciples that had walked with him found some of his teaching uh, offensive and they turned away and walked no longer with him. But here we see that many had believed on him because they saw all the signs and they said, well, when, when the Christ comes, the Messiah comes, will he do more than what we've seen this man do? Actually, that was an argument you remember that uh, Jesus used himself when John the Baptist sent a messenger from prison. Are you the one that should come or should we be looking for another one? Go back and tell John what you've seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dumb speak, the, the poor have the gospel preached to them. What other signs can, can he do? You know, he walked on water. He turned the, the, the he multiplied the, 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 molds, uh, the loaves and the fishes, as we heard, and uh, uh, turned the water into wine. He raised the dead. He cleansed the leper. When the Christ comes, will he do more? Than, what more could be done? And they believed in him. They put their trust in him. But we see that the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Now, you know, really a faith and the absence of it, it becomes a real heart issue. We have the saying that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Amen. For example, atheism is not really so much an intellectual problem. It's not. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And in fact it means no God. No God. No, it's, it's saying no to God. I don't want God in my life. I don't want to even acknowledge his existence. I want to cut him out altogether. And then of course the heart looks to the mind and to arguments to support that position. Okay, so we have all these, these theories that came out of that. It's the same with uh, agnosticism. You know, some people think that agnostics are nice people. Well, my question to the agnostic is, are you an honest agnostic or a dishonest agnostic? What does that mean? Well, an honest agnostic is one who doesn't know but wants to know. This is such a vital issue. Is there a God? Is Jesus the way to God? An agnostic doesn't know but wants to know. He's pained by the, his ignorance and wants to find an answer to those questions. But there are those who have willed ignorance, convenient ignorance, to hide behind that. And it becomes a heart issue. Now, here we find this, a very important thing here. The people that oppose Jesus the most are the ones with most to lose. So it was the authorities that not only took a position against him, they wanted him out of the way. They wanted to kill him because he's the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. And so that means that if they're going to build the temple of God, everything's got to come out from him. He, he's the, 
the multi-directional stone that, that determines the shape and the size and, and everything about the building. And they've got to start all again with Jesus at the starting point. And they didn't want that. You know, I've discovered when you, when you, when you preach grace, that really it's a, it becomes a heart problem. Those that oppose grace are the ones with the most to lose. They've got to confess that their self-righteousness, all the things they've boasted in is not enough. It's not good enough. In fact, there's filthy rags before God. They've got the most to lose. So they fight against grace and they, you know, they use all these arguments, greasy grace and grace is just the license to sin and, and so on. And, uh, you know, some people, uh, uh, especially in leadership, they fear losing control. If you, if you trust in the grace of God, you're trusting God to work in people's hearts instead of using guilt manipulation and control and intimidation and all those things. And of course, you know, grace touches this whole thing called tithing because tithing belongs to the old covenant, not the new covenant. So people that have got a lot to lose, they oppose it the most. That's what I'm saying. So here we find that the leaders sent officers to arrest him with a view, of course, to kill him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we should not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, what he's saying here is this. I'm only going to be here a little bit longer. In fact, six months is all that Jesus had left. Then he was going to go to the cross. He was basically saying, now's the time. Listen, while I'm here, receive what I'm offering. Receive this life that I'm offering you. And, um, uh, you know, they, they misunderstood it. He's going away. What does it mean? Is it, does he regard his work here as being uh, unfruitful? So he's going to go to the Gentiles now. Is that what he's saying? Well, of course, the gospel did go to the Gentiles. That would probably preaching or speaking prophetically without realizing it because the not Jesus but but his followers took the gospel to the uttermost part of the world they would never have imagined in that conversation where this gospel would have spread around the world so that you know it's gone to all the nations of the world just about amen but Jesus is urging them now to receive him because it, he won't be here for much longer and uh that's what the Bible tells us. That's, that's a theme that we see through the Bible, is not to presume upon tomorrow. If you're hearing good news today, receive it today. Don't put it off. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Or as Paul put it, behold, now is the day of the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We're living in a day of salvation. Amen. It's a privileged era to be living in, or dispensation, some might call it. And, um, you know, some people think, like with all these uh, tragedies that are happening around the world, all these natural disasters, that this is the judgment of God that's coming upon the earth. Well, if it is, in my estimation, he's judging the wrong people. <laughs> the ones that are most guilty don't seem to be judged at this moment. It's not a day of judgment, friends. As Jesus said, when, when you know, when... Um, uh, that tower of Siloam fell on some people, killed some people. Lord, were they, they more guilty than others? No, they weren't. They weren't. 
You know, it's not a question of if something bad happens to you, that's the judgment of God. This is not a day of judgment. Amen? It's a day of grace. It's a day of salvation. That's why now is the time to preach and to share Christ while it is day. The night comes when no one can work. So let's reach out. Like Jesus said, now I'm reaching out to you. So what this kind of gives the context for what we're going to read now, which is the theme really of this message. He invites them to receive this salvation on the last day. Okay, there were seven, some say eight days in the feast because there was another one added on. That's the day he's speaking about. Remember the, the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus did not come at the beginning because he knew they were waiting for him to come in the caravan of people and they would arrest him. But he came secretly on his own, not with a group of people. And he came halfway through the feast. And then he could go straight into the temple and start preaching and no one could arrest him privately because he was there before the people, you see? Now, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, there's something about the, the background to this feast and what happened on this last day, which I'll just get into to get the context of this. The Feast of Tabernacles commemorated the wandering in the desert. You know, they, they set up these booths, these temporary dwellings in the desert because, you know, it was just a temporary home. But once they entered the promised land, they had abundance of crops due to regular rainfall. A desert is a desert. Nothing grows in a desert, right? They survived because God miraculously provided water for them, water from the rock and so on. But once they entered the promised land, it was different. They had abundance of crops due to regular rainfall. The feast acknowledged the fruitful harvests of barley and wheat, grapes and olives, which had all been gathered in. And all this was possible because of the gift of rain upon the land. Now the feast included a daily procession of priests from the temple to the pool of Siloam. So what they did, one priest would go with a pitcher on his shoulder from the temple to the, the pool of Siloam and a, a procession of priests would follow him. He would fill the, uh, the, the pitcher up with water, come back into the courtyard and pour out this pitcher of water in the courtyard and quote from the book of Isaiah, with joy shall you draw water from the wells of salvation. Okay? Now, Jesus looked at this pathetic thing that it was because the very thing they did not offer and the people was living water. They watched this water basically getting sucked up by the dry courtyard, the sand, and there was nothing there for the people. It was all just dry, it just disappeared. So Jesus stood up and cried with a loud voice. If anyone is really thirsty, come unto me and drink. Now just imagine, it'd be like somebody standing up here halfway through my sermon and shouting out, 
That's what he did. I don't do that because you're not Jesus, okay? <laughs> we have ushers that will deal with you. That's what it would be like, though. But can you just imagine? Everybody would look around because he said he cried with a loud voice. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Without knowing it, this was a picture of how the people were left dry, thirsty and unsatisfied with religion. This, this little religious procession, this ceremony that took place, it just so illustrated how religion was not doing it for the people. They were not giving the people living water. But Jesus said, I'm here to do that thing, to give you living water. So Jesus' invitation, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Thirsty, come and drink. Only living water can satisfy our inner thirst. Now, living water refers to the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just say something here, because a lot of people preach on this text and, and you know, they even use it as a theme for uh, their ministry and so on. And uh, I want to say this, that, um, uh, you know, apart from the first two years in my Christian walk, all my years have been with the Pentecostal church. That's my background, okay? And uh, the Pentecostal church uh, basically has majored in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you study theology books, um, you'll find that when it comes to the theology of God, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of teaching about God the Father, there's a lot of teaching about God the Son, but very little about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is often being referred to as the neglected person of the Trinity. Okay, so the Pentecostals, I believe, were raised up to, to bring about balance in that area and emphasize the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, now, you know, if, if you're reading Pentecostal theology, they, they will teach such things as these are the Pentecostal distinctives. They were mentioned speaking in tongues, healing, prophecy, uh, miracles, uh, you know, supernatural words of knowledge and wisdom, discerning of spirits and all that sort of thing. And, and the Pentecostal believes that, that there is a second experience in the Holy Spirit called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Okay? So every Christian receives the Holy Spirit when they're born again. Every Christian. But there's a secondary experience which is called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Okay? So these are the things that the Pentecostals teach. Now, now, I believe those things, as I say, because that's my background and, and that's my experience as well. I've experienced those things and still do. That's my experience. Um, if you don't agree with that, that's fine. I'm, you know, I'm not making an issue of that. I'm just saying that's where I come from. That's what the Pentecostals uh, emphasize. But here's the thing. When, when we talk about the, Pente the, you know, the distinctive of the Holy Spirit and we mention things like the phenomena, the gifts, or the blessings, then that really is not what the Bible teaches about the distinctives. Jesus said this, when he is come, he will testify of me. That's the distinctive of the Holy Spirit. Okay? When the Holy Spirit comes, he will get you to focus on Jesus. In, in the next chapter in John, uh, Jesus said this, when he's come, he will glorify me. 
for he will take of mine, my own, and he will reveal it to you. Okay? So that's what the Holy Spirit does. Some people think that Jesus brings us to the Holy Spirit. It's the other way around. The Holy Spirit brings us to Jesus. Amen? He wants us to focus on Jesus. He, wa he wants to take the things of Christ, this incredible salvation that we have, this living water, that's what it is, and he wants to reveal it to us. And so the Holy Spirit is the one that teaches us who we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit brings our attention to this is who you are. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us Christ is in you. You've been baptized into Christ. You are in him. He is in you. Amen. He teaches us um, all that we have, uh, the riches of his grace. The Holy Spirit is the one that keeps bringing us to focus our attention on that. Now, I'm not discounting the, the phenomena. Okay. That happens. It's good. It's wonderful. And it's a part of the, the Christian experience. But don't call that the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming so that we have, you know, that's the goal of it, that we have these experiences. No, the Holy Spirit has come that we might know Jesus. Let's look at what Jesus promised here, uh, his disciples. He said that he would send the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. What he's saying there is this. While I'm here, I can only be in one place in one time. While I'm in this human body that he is in, I can only be in the land of Israel. But if I go, I will send him. And guess what? I will be everywhere. I will be in you everywhere, all the world over. Amen. That's, that's, the, that's the good news. That's why I've got to go away. Because if I don't go away, he will not come. And he said, I, I, when I go away, I will not leave you as orphans. I will, I will come to you through the Holy Spirit. So it's Christ in us, and that's the living water. That's the living water, friends. Amen? Is that we, we, we receive Jesus and experience him, and when we experience him, we're satisfied. We're complete in him. We know we're complete. We're not... You know, it doesn't mean that all our problems are solved and we don't have challenges. It doesn't mean that. But we've been equipped for the totality of life. And we don't have to go running here and running there to have our emotional pain or, 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 or lack dealt with because Jesus is enough for us. That's the living water. Now, um, so the Holy Spirit is the distinctive of the, the new covenant because under the, under the old covenant, the law was the distinctive. So Paul says, if you are led by the, those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. You're, you, you show which covenant you are in or, and relating to God in by how you are relating. Are, are you relating via the law? Are you still under the law? Are you being led by the Spirit? Are you experiencing Christ in you, the hope of glory leading you, guiding you, empowering you? directing you, giving you wisdom, giving you life in every situation. It's about Jesus in you. Amen. There's a lot of talk today about the, the revival that's happening in America, things that are happening there. Friends, when, when you have Christ in you, and I'm not decrying that at all, I think it's a wonderful thing that's happening. Praise God. How could you knock anything like that? But that should be a normal experience. You don't, you know, people see revival as like a visitation. If I come to visit you, uh, you know, have a cup of coffee with you maybe, 
and then I'll leave you. <laughs> okay? When I've eaten your cake and I've drank your coffee, see you later. But when he comes, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have Jesus with us all the time. We don't have to go on a pilgrimage somewhere to get this. We don't have to go here or go there or, or, or it's not a temporary thing. It's Christ in you. That's what Jesus was offering. He said, I will come and live in you. I will be with you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, Jesus did not only speak of something coming into a person, but something flowing out of them. Right Now, when, when he spoke to the woman at the well, he spoke to her about living water that would come into her, that he wanted to give her. Why? Because she was thirsty. In fact, you know, we often say she was a, an immoral woman, she was a sinful woman, she slept around, she went with this man, then went on with this man, then on that one man. Jesus never spoke to her about her sin, he didn't need to. She knew she was immoral, she knew she was a sinner, she was even afraid to come and draw water when the other women were there, so she came in the middle of the day. But what he said to her is, not you're sinful, but you're thirsty. Now, I will give you water so you will never have to live like that again. You'll never have to seek for what you're seeking for in, in a relationship, going from this relationship and that relationship, looking for the perfect relationship, I will give you a living water. I will satisfy you from within. I will deal with your addiction problem. And, 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 and he, he did that. He gave her this living water. But, but when we come to chapter seven, 7, where we are now, he didn't only say that this water would come in us, but it would go out through us. Amen? Out of the innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. You know, there's a, there's a difference. The best way to illustrate this is a difference between the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and the Dead Sea. The River Jordan flows into both of them. The River Jordan flows down into the Lake of Galilee, right? And then it flows out the other end of the Lake of Galilee. And it goes down to the Dead Sea. And the problem is it goes into the Dead Sea and that's where it stops. The Dead Sea does not have an outlet. It has an inlet, but it doesn't have an outlet. That's why it's called dead. It's actually the lowest point on the earth. Did you know that? That's why it doesn't flow out anywhere. <laughs> it's, it's, there's nowhere lower than, than the Dead Sea. It's, it's over a thousand feet below sea level the surface. It's, it's so low and that's why it's full of salt because you know the, the sun evaporates the water and it, it flows in but it's got nowhere to go. There's nothing living there. There's no living fish. There's no living plants. Uh, you know there's a lot of minerals. You, you've probably seen pictures of people can even float on the Dead Sea without having to support themselves. You know it's just so full of saline and, and uh, it's dead. It's dead because it has an inlet, but no outlet. And do you get the picture? Jesus comes into our lives to flow out of our lives. Now, as I've got here, a vessel will not overflow until it's full. In other words, let's come back to this illustration with the, the woman at the, the well. Until Jesus has filled my need, and I know him as the one that is, that is the only one I need, Okay, when I really know that and experience that, then I will be filled up with him and there will be an overflow. Amen? 
And so that's why this is in, in that kind of order. First of all, John chapter 4, Jesus comes to make us whole, to show us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the, the only one that we really need, the only one that can really satisfy us and minister to us in our deepest point. When we experience that, then we're filled to overflowing and we've, there's a river of life flowing out from us. We have something, we have someone to minister to the world. And you, you don't need to be here in a pulpit to do that. In fact, God, the people that God uses most and the times he uses them the most is out, out of the pulpit. It's in the street. It's, it's today God is going to use you. I know some of you are going to be in situations where people are going to need to be ministered to and as the Holy Spirit leads you, you will be able to minister a word in season, the, the, the living word of Jesus. Amen? That's what, that's what Jesus came to offer. And that's why he stood up. He just said, you know, these guys, they're like the Dead Sea. They've taken in so much, so much, so much. But look what they've given out. It's just gone into nothingness. It's not doing anybody any good. If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being, you won't have to look to religion to minister to others. It will be just people like you and I going about our daily business that God is working in and through to minister life to people. Hallelujah. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. That means the prophet that was forecast or predicted by Moses. Others said, this is the Christ or the Messiah. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. As we learned last week, our times are in God's hands. Amen. Now, some of the crowd rejected Jesus because they thought he was born in Galilee. The very, the very passage that convinced his critics that he could not be the Messiah was one of the strongest to prove that he was. That he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. <laughs> but they just didn't know because he had been brought up in Galilee with them all that time. Now isn't that amazing how many people can be mistaken in some of their thinking, and because of that, they can reject Jesus. You know, like how many people have not come to God because they don't know where Cain got his wife from? <laughs> Amen. I think, there you go. There's a fault in the Bible. Where did Cain get his wife? Well, he, he, he was his sister back in those days. Adam and Eve had sons and daughters. But because of that one thing, they quibble over that little thing and they don't receive Jesus. Some people cannot harmonize this scripture with that scripture. See, there's a contradiction in the Bible. How can I believe? And, and they think until they can iron out every little problem, they're not gonna to come to Christ. How sad that is. There are some that just received him. When the Christ comes, can he do more than this? Look at the big evidence. Look at the big picture. Look at the lives that are being changed. Look at the transformation that's taking place. The, the little quibbles, the things you quibble over will get sorted out along the way. Amen? There was a division among them. 
The word implies a, a violent dissension. People getting animated. They were getting very strongly, uh, strongly either for or against. That's what it means. Some believed he was the Messiah. Others wanted to arrest him. So this line in the sand was becoming more and more pronounced now as Jesus gets closer to the cross. I love this. I, I find this quite amusing, actually. You remember the, 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 the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees? The chief priests, by the way, were the Sadducees, okay? And usually they don't get on well together. They were really at opposite ends theologically. But in their purpose to get rid of Jesus, they were united. And they sent the officers to arrest Jesus. Then the officers came, came back. They came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now the temple police were so impacted by him, by Jesus, they didn't want to arrest him. The literal emphasis of their statement is this, never did a man, the, the, the emphasis on the word man, never did a, a man speak like this. He must be more than a man. Yes, he's a man, but he's more than a man. That's what they were saying. They were mesmerised. They were just riveted on the spot there. When they listened to him speak, they were sent to arrest him, but, but they couldn't because of what they were hearing. Why? Because he spoke with such authority. What does that mean? Well, we, we, we read in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In fact, I think we looked at this last week, didn't we? The difference is the scribes and the Pharisees would quote from the prophets or from Moses. Moses said this, or David said that, or Samuel said this, or Isaiah said that. But Jesus stood up and said, I say unto you, I say unto you. You see, the prophets brought the word of God, but Jesus is the word. He is the word of God. He's the message. I say unto you. But here's the other thing. He also spoke with such grace. So all bear witness to him, we read in Luke 4.22, and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Friends, it is very difficult, unless the anointing of God is on you, to speak with authority and to speak with grace at the same, same time. Usually you find the preacher will do one or the other. But Jesus could speak with authority and yet with such graciousness that people knew this was God speaking to them. And that's what these temple police say, we can't arrest him. There's something that's, you know, bearing witness to us inside that we would be denying and going against. So they came back without him. And the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were angry. Instead of arresting him, they had been arrested by what they heard. It's like reading the Bible. To judge it and find it's judged you perfectly. <laughs> had that experience? You read the Bible, you, do, you think, I'm not reading the Bible, the Bible is reading me. <laughs> How does it know so much about me? Who told them? <laughs> The response of the rulers revealed their arrogance and their disdain of the people. No one of the Pharisees have believed in him. 
And they're the only ones that can discern truth from error. You know, you don't expect the riffraff, that's what they were saying, to really understand about this man. We, we are the ones that know. But here's the thing, the truth is that God habitually chooses weak and humble people to reveal himself to and to work through by the power of his Holy Spirit. Okay. Having said that, none of the Pharisees, there was one of the Pharisees that believed in him. Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our Lord judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? In other words, we haven't really properly tried him. They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Now, though Nicodemus didn't publicly side with Jesus, at this point he was still, we would say, a secret disciple. Though he didn't publicly side with Jesus, he said that even their own law would not condemn a man without hearing him firsthand. They wanted to kill him. Their response to him was another insult to the people of Galilee. Are you as ignorant as, as these? Then they said this, no prophet has ever come from Galilee. But they got that wrong. You know who came from Galilee? Jonah. Jonah came from Galilee. So they got that wrong. Is it because they didn't know that Jonah, didn't, uh, that Jonah came from Galilee? Or is it because they were prejudiced against Jonah because Jonah was the prophet that took God's message to the Gentiles. You remember? And the Gentiles believed he went to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And uh, he didn't even, didn't even give them an opportunity or, or a hope of salvation. He just said, in 40 days' time, Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people repented. It was the biggest mass conversion I think in history and, and God spared them and if you read the scriptures he gave them another 150 years before they lapsed so much back into their own ways that God eventually judged them but, 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 but the fact that he went to the Gentile remember Jonah himself did not want to go that was the mindset of the, the Jew they, they hated the Gentiles you know they, they, they did not want the Gentiles to be saved so is it that they didn't know about Jonah coming from Galilee or is it that they were so prejudiced against Jesus being the light of the world that they wouldn't even acknowledge him as a prophet? Jesus said, we'll close with this, he would bring division on earth. We've seen that here today. We've seen it over the last few weeks. There was a division among the people because of him. But Christ satisfies thirsty souls. That's what we found. Some people were against him, but others drank the living water, received his salvation, and were satisfied. The Pharisees sent officers to arrest him, and the officers come back and confess that never a man spoke as, as he did. Division, the officers and the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin sit in judgment upon him, but one of their own number rebukes them, Nicodemus. Now, if this was the case with Christ, then it would be no difference with us. 
You know, as we receive, as we have received this living water, as it flows out from us, the life of Christ, as we minister Jesus to people, you'll get two responses. You'll get those that will come to him, drink of the living water and find salvation, and others that will even oppose you. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. You know, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. And then we read this. And everyone went to his own house. Some, some of you know that sometimes I quote that if we're out at night and I want to go home. <laughs> I just say, oh God, I've got a verse here. Everyone went to his own house. But actually there's a lot in that. It's not just a throwaway remark. What it means is this. It's actually very solemn. The feast was now over, this eight-day feast. When Jesus was there teaching the people, it was over. The temporary booths that they erected to celebrate the tabernacles would be taken down or would now return to their own homes, away from Christ. And there the curtain falls. In other words, what we, what we read earlier on, now is the day of salvation. You might never get another opportunity. That, that, that's what that verse is saying. Everyone went back to their own homes. Some went home believing, some went home hating Jesus. But the day of salvation had come to them. And friends, what I would say is this as I, as I close. Some people believe as we get close to the end that, that you know, people, people, I've heard people say this, no one's getting saved. Yes, they are. They are. They will always get saved. Don't believe that. That's a lie. People will always get saved. In fact, I believe this, that as it gets darker in the world, the, the glory of God is going to come more and more on the, on the church and people are going to come to Christ for salvation. Those that want to come out of darkness into the light, they will see the light and, and come to it. Amen. Until the rapture, people will be saved. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of grace. Now is the day for people to come to the Lord. Amen. When, when, when the rapture takes place, the Holy Spirit goes as well. And so the Holy Spirit is gone and there's no, there's no work of, of salvation on the earth through the preaching of the gospel. Now, Paul teaches this, that these are the times of the Gentiles. This is the time of the nations, the gospel going to the nations. And while we're here, people will be getting saved. People are getting saved right now as we, as we preach, as we sit here. People are getting saved all over the world. People will be saved here on the Gold Coast. People will be saved throughout Australia. It's, it's the times of the Gentiles until the church is taken away and then God's focus will turn again to Israel. But while we're here, people are getting saved. Amen? So let's remember that God gave us the Holy Spirit that we might not be like the Dead Sea, but like the, the, the Lake of Galilee. Remember the Lake of Galilee was full of fish. They got abundance of fish because there was life there. We're, 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 the, we're a river of life. God is flowing into you, wants to meet all your needs. He wants to you and I to see that he alone can satisfy us in our deepest part, but then he wants to flow out of us, overflow, to touch the lives of others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your precious word. We pray, Lord God, that the word will find a lodging place in our hearts that, Lord, you just uh, continue to minister life through your word. 
and that we will be indeed a channel for the rivers of life to flow out, not only into us, but out from us to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.